A big thanks to today's Does Not Compute sponsors, Linode. Linode is one of the easiest ways to deploy and manage your own SSD virtual machines. You can spin up new machines in seconds, all customized with your favorite Linux distro, whatever computing resources you need, and which of their eight data centers you want it to be in. Since all Linode servers are billed hourly with a monthly cap, you only pay for the resources you actually use. They've also got some great additional services like automated backups, long view to easily monitor system metrics, and node balancers, which make it super easy to scale your site or app as needed. Since these are full-on virtual machines with root access, you can set up just about anything you need, whether that's a personal VPN or Git server, Docker containers, or something else entirely. So whether you're deploying a personal site or need a place to build out your company's next app backend, make sure to give Linode a look at linode.com slash does not compute. When you sign up with the offer code does not compute 20, you'll get $20 in credit. Sean, today is a very special episode of Does Not Compute. Why is that, Paul? Well, we have another guest, and this time it is Mr. Peter Cooper of Cooper Press fame. Can I go woohoo at this point? Woohoo! Yeah. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> Peter, how are you doing? Yeah, great. We don't sound awkward at all, which I, I really love. That's what I love about this format. We can uh, all sound really comfortable together straight away. Yeah, we try to keep, keep it pretty conversational. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's cool. So I think a lot of people these days know you from Cooper Press, from all the newsletters you send out, and you you obviously put out a ton of great content there that's very useful for people. One thing that I was curious about is how you focus on programming now, how you get your fix, as it were. Um, you've got a, a full company. You have, what, 10 employees now at Cooper Press? Yeah, 10 of us now. That's amazing. So I'm assuming you get less time to do dev and, and learn about dev. Has that been Has that been weird for you? How do you deal with that? I should start off by saying that, yeah, like I obviously we put out a ton of newsletters. Um, so we've got about 10 different newsletters at the moment. We're sort of going out to over 300,000 people each week. Um, so just in case anyone isn't familiar with uh, me, and there are definitely many, many people who are not. And that's a good thing because it means more growth for us. Uh, but anyone who's not familiar, um, we have newsletters like JavaScript Weekly, Ruby Weekly, you know, HTML5 Weekly. Basically, like it's what it says on the tin, like if you want to keep up to stuff that's you know keep up to date with stuff that's going on in the javascript world you'd subscribe to javascript weekly and you'd get like a weekly digest of about uh, 20 to 30 items um that would just keep you up to date uh but as you just rightly pointed out uh, there's not really a newsletter that's for people that are doing newsletters so uh, in terms of <laughs> how i keep up to date with things you know i've really got to have my ear to the ground all the time just because there isn't a newsletter like filling that gap for me um so I do read other people's newsletters and stuff like that. But generally, we're trying to break the stories or we're trying to, you know, find a new trend or that type of thing. So I literally have to be constantly paying attention to what is going on on Twitter and Reddit and Hacker News and just generally, like, in all the emails we receive and stuff like that, uh, just to keep a, a grasp of everything. And as you rightly pointed out, I don't get quite as much time now to do development as perhaps I used to. So, you know, when I used to actually be a full-time developer obviously that was what i would do uh now you know my main role is kind of almost like as a manager and as a publisher so while i still do development i kind of run into that problem that um perhaps some of the big screencasters have run into so uh, people like ryan bates for example um he 
used to be quite well known in the uh, the rail scene. I believe he kind of got to this point where he just recorded so many kind of screencasts about rails that he reached a point where he actually wasn't doing any more rails development to actually learn the new stuff to do more videos about. Um, so I'm always very aware of that and try not to run into that same problem with the newsletters. Uh, and, you know, the way I do that is I do keep my, my hand in, but then I also try and keep it a higher view of things. So, you know, like a CTO, for example, I kind of perhaps almost have that role now um, in the company. So I, I keep up to date with things, but I don't necessarily mean, it doesn't mean I have to be like working on an Angular app every day or a React app or every day or whatever to at least understand and appreciate what those things are. So it kind of becomes more of a just staying aware of the temperature of the room, how things are growing and maturing in the dev world and not so much interacting with it day to day. Um, there's, there's kind of interaction, but it's not necessarily at the the deep level that, you know, a full-time developer may be. Um, but we, I have to be really good at like learning from full-time developers because that's where the knowledge comes from. But I mean, you see this in so many other walks of life. You have uh, your kind of um, political press. Uh, you have um, you know people that do movie reviews and things like that. Now they're not necessarily producing movies. They're not necessarily running you know to be elected that type of thing. Uh, but they can still give you a really informed you know, viewpoint on everything. So we try and provide that same kind of role, but within the developer uh, space. Well, I mean, I would say you guys are doing a really great job with that. Uh, so before Paul told me that we had uh, you coming on to the show, he's, he asked me if I heard of Peter Cooper. And I said, what? Well, I, I don't think I had. And he said, well, are you subscribed to any of these weekly newsletters? And I said, yeah, like basically all of them. I'm actually <laughs> subscribed right now to five of your newsletters. And they're, they're amazing. Only five to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they do they do a really great job. So my my role is working with other developers within the company that I work at, and part of my job is to explore new ideas and technologies and learn about things that might make us more efficient or solve some problems that we have. And a lot of the resources that I find are useful, I find through your newsletters. So you guys are doing a really great job at what you're what you just said you wanted to do. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and you know, you've touched on a point that I'm always running into in that I'm not. Even though I put myself out there and I'm not kind of scared about being self-promotional, it's not something I kind of actively do. So I'm not always putting my name inside every single email saying, oh, you know, this is Peter here and this is Peter doing this and Peter doing that. Um, you know, obviously, like many geeks, I'm not naturally that way wired, but I've had to kind of learn a lot of this self-promotional stuff just to kind of do well in a, in a media kind of sphere. Um, this is something that I know I'm weak at and I actually need to be better at doing that because... You know, there are lots of people that read things and they don't know who it is. And if the name does come up, they don't know who it is. And that can be a problem in certain situations, especially like at conferences or events or things like that. But uh, yeah, in a, in a way, it's good as well, because it means sometimes that I can, you know, let other people edit certain issues. Um, so we actually had for JavaScript Weekly, um, Dr. Axel Rauschmeier, who is very well known in the JavaScript space, he was the editor for about a year. And you know, just because I kind of stay hidden from it so much, there's plenty of people that still think he is the editor, even though he stopped doing it like over a year ago. Um, people are tweeting him all the time saying, oh, can you put this in and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'm st I don't edit anymore. So um, yeah, I kind of hide away a little bit. So what does a typical day for you at Cooper Press look like? Like, what, what are you actually doing? You just said you're hiding away behind the scenes. We know you're obviously learning about dev stuff. And so you can tell other people about it. But what is kind of your day to day? So every day is kind of different. Um, it's because we run on the kind of a weekly tempo. So our kind of product, what I call production days are Wednesday and Thursday. So those are the days where we actually produce 
newsletters and put them out. So those two days are really, really hectic. So um, I don't know when this podcast will go out, but obviously we're recording this on a Tuesday. So this is kind of like almost like the last moment for me before everything goes absolutely crazy for two whole days. Uh, you know, getting all the items together, writing stuff up and all that type of thing. Um, and obviously, I have people here to help me with that now. But when you're doing 10 different newsletters across two days and you've got to make sure the quality's up and, uh, you know, people like sponsors are happy and you've actually stayed up to date with things. Because if a massive you know news announcement comes out 10 minutes before the newsletter does, we usually have to let you know find a way of getting it in um, because, you know, a lot of people just don't necessarily coordinate with us or keep us in mind. We, our, our job is to kind of follow them. So, yeah, Wednesday and Thursday is very hectic. But then Monday, Tuesday and Friday... Um, much more interesting days for me at least because I actually get to focus on you know how are we growing as a company uh, you know how do I manage um, you know the people that I work with um, and, and new projects that we're working on so we're currently working on three kind of totally new areas to us so those three things are events both online and offline so those are actually two things um, and then the third one is podcasting so kind of what's going on here and that's kind of what i spend my monday tuesdays and fridays on it's kind of the new stuff you know where are we going with all of this um and i kind of learned the development stuff on the job i'm I'm not actively saving time to say right i need to go and learn about you know something in java or i need to go and learn a bit of elixir or whatever uh, i'm still not currently at that point and i'm hoping that eventually when i've got more people helping me do the curation and so on that I would be able to take a day a week let's say a Friday for example and just say yeah I'm gonna you know just dig deep on some tech thing that allows me to broaden my knowledge a bit more just not got to that point yet there's just too much you know whether it is events and podcasts or uh, working with the social stuff because you know social is an area we've had a, a lot of success uh, so it just needs constant attention so yeah I guess it's that typical thing of when you within a company whether you run it or whether you're an employee that whole running around firefighting kind kind of role uh, that seems to be where i found myself but i'm getting a lot of energy from it like it's really you know working for me doing that so it uh, it doesn't burn me out luckily so i actually right before you called me i was watching the video that you guys posted on medium uh it was about the the application that you guys built that you used to to put these things together oh right yeah yeah i thought that was really cool um i really enjoyed the aesthetic of it i just i don't know i thought it was awesome so i guess when you're talking about you know all these new areas popping up all these new opportunities popping up and the difficulty of managing such a flow of information between the social stuff podcasts events and all that as a programmer is it every is it ever hard to just uh, not stop what you're doing and build something to help manage that? I mean, I suppose you're really busy doing other things, so you might necessarily have time for that. But I feel like if I were in that situation, I would start having these ideas like, man, I want to build this or man, I want to build that. They would solve so many of my problems. Yeah. So I actually do prioritize that. That is one area where I really have to make sure that I, I stay on the ball. And that is using the skills that I've got to help automate or semi-automate parts of the business. So when I began with the first newsletter, I you know literally only had like a thousand people. So I had like a thousand people sign up straight away because I had a, a popular Ruby blog. So some of those signed up. Uh, then I sat down to produce the issue and I literally just rigged up the simplest Ruby script. It just took, uh, I think it was a YAML file at the time. There is a video on YouTube somewhere of this system in action. So it was like a YAML file of the links and the summaries. There was a, an ERB template of, you know, for the HTML email and it just kind of you know ran the YAML template through the ERB template, or sorry, the YAML data through the ERB template, 
produce the HTML, and then I could copy and paste that into MailChimp, and bam, done. Uh, so, you know, it would take me a few issue, a few hours, and I would have an issue done. But then we got to a point where it's like, well, hang on, there's these other topics that we could cover. So like JavaScript Weekly, for example, and I say we, it was literally just me at this point. Um, I'm just kind of used to speaking the we now, but, uh, sure. you know, I wanted to do two newsletters, but it's like, well, I've only got a certain amount of time from the other things that I'm doing. So how can I improve my tools just to make it a little bit more efficient? So I managed to, you know, develop enough stuff that would actually make it a little bit more complex, but actually make it simpler for me to put the issues together. So let's say the issues now took half the time. Well, now I could run two newsletters. And so each time I've gone to launch a new one, I've tried to think, right, how can I make the tools X percent more efficient so that I can now run that extra thing without it actually taking any more time out of my week? So I I, I can't actually say, you know, we, we do 10 newsletters in a week now, like, you know, in three hours still, like the first one did. But it doesn't take, you know, 10 times whatever that first one took. Uh, the tools just have become more and more efficient and the link system that uh, you referred to. So for everyone else's benefit, because our newsletters are very heavily link oriented, they're not heavy on editorial or you know any kind of opinion or anything. Um, our opinion is literally in the items that we choose. Uh, so what we needed was an online system that was almost like kind of a delicious or a, a pin board or something like that to store all of our links in uh, but we wanted to be able to tag them by, you know, is this going to be high up in the newsletter? Is this a featured item? Is this a code item? Is this a video? Uh, which publications is it going in? Does it go in HTML5 Weekly and JavaScript Weekly? Uh, you know, is it being edited? Does it need to be rejected? Does it need to be reviewed by someone else? All these types of concerns. Uh, so that's why the link system was built and has evolved over time. So I spent, what, like two days over the Easter uh, break that just passed just really bringing it up another notch. So that's uh, what you'll see in the uh, Medium post um, that we did. And if anyone wants to see that, just kind of Google for uh, Medium uh, Cooper Press and it'll be one of the latest items. It's all about our link building system. Um, sorry, link collection system, I guess. So uh, yeah, you can check out the v YouTube video of how that looks. Yep, and we'll definitely have a link to that in show notes as well Yeah, cool. for anybody who's interested. I, I really like that approach specifically because you didn't start out saying what is the ultimate newsletter building tool? You said, what's enough to get me by so I can release this thing into the world? It was focused on an actual result instead of the path to get to that result. Um, and I think that's that's such a nice approach, like working working with a very simple tool set that you know and know you like, and then expanding on it as you see what your actual needs are. I think that's such a healthy attitude towards development in general. Yeah, I've, there was actually an article that went out a couple of weeks ago called something like Lugnut Development or something. Um, and they were basically making the point that there's this model of uh, development that it's a bit like uh, a wheel and putting nuts on a wheel. So you kind of, you get the wheel and you put it on and you kind of tighten up one of the nuts on one side and then you tighten up a nut on the other side and then you kind of keep alternating around uh, the wheel. You don't just like focus on one nut and then just do it one nut at a time. Um, and it's much better in the article. I'm not really explaining it very well, but they're, they're kind of, ultimate point was that with a piece of software or a, you know a problem that you're trying to solve through software kind of just do like a tiny bit that is just enough to like hold it together in one area and then just like jump to a totally different part of the, that code base so that you kind of got the wheel on but it's not perhaps very tightly on but it's kind of on and just about working and then you go back around and you kind of tighten up tiny pieces by you know area by area 
rather than just saying, right, well, you know, I've got to build a newsletter system, so let's make the most perfect template system that I can possibly do. And then think, right, how am I going to send the email? Now I'm going to make the most perfect email sending system. It's just like, just get like a really nasty kind of, you know, system that perhaps crashes all the time. You need to keep restarting it or whatever, but just get something that will send them out. Just get something that will render a basic template. And then you can just go around those things step by step and just gradually improve them over time. And that's kind of what we've done. Um, Or... If we haven't done that, then we've gone to external providers. So like MailChimp, for example, you know, obviously very high quality for sending email. Uh, but then over time, we're gradually replacing them with our own solutions. So we're still kind of adopting that approach. So I, I just like that idea of gradual improvements, but be be totally cool with accepting something that is scrappy and kind of crappy and doesn't have tests and whatever. Like, I am totally all for that. There's a lot of developers who are not, and they kind of take a more, you know, let's engineer this well from the outset type thing. But I am such a scrappy developer, it's ridiculous. Um, perhaps not like PHP scrappy, and I'm going to get loads of hate mail now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I kind of adopt that approach. I'm more interested in the results. And I'm not building, you know, software for a nuclear reactor or, you know, building a bridge or anything like that. This is software that can break, and it doesn't matter because I'm the one who has to put up with the pain if it breaks. So, yeah, I like that approach. Um, so that may be something else we can also include a link to because it is a really good piece. Yeah, definitely. I really like how you describe that because uh, actually a few times in our show now, we've talked about uh, not trying to prematurely optimize things or over-engineer things from the start, but it's more important to just get something out, you know? Uh, and a lot of my job deals with building MVPs for clients. And so mostly what I do is say no, you know, to features or say like, that, that's not necessary right now. Uh, we don't have to think about that yet because we have smaller problems to solve. And even more so, I think, you know, a lot of our listeners are learning how to program. And so I think the what you just talked about is such important advice. Focus on just getting something out. You know, you don't have to make it perfect. In fact, it's not going to be perfect. As long as you get something out there, you can riff on it, iterate on it. But if you continually kind of get stuck in the, this isn't perfect, you're never going to ship anything. Yeah. So your newsletters are all really focused on learning and growing as a developer. It's about staying up to date. It's about, you know, knowing the latest trends, whether or not you want to use them, but being aware of where things are headed, being aware of new technologies, new tools that are available. It can be very intimidating as a new developer to start out. Do you have any particular advice for people who are new to development and looking to get started? Well, you know, there's obviously the whole classic advice of just, you know, pick up a great book and get going, which I know probably some of us who learned to program, you know, many, many years ago, that is kind of what we did because it's the only option we had. Uh, but I know that doesn't really work for everyone nowadays, which is why it's cool that there's been different kind of things like, say, Node School, for example, have come along um, and offer a somewhat different approach to what, you know, we may have experienced in the 80s or 90s learning to program. Um, it's become a much more social thing nowadays. And I think that's actually perhaps why I'm almost like bad to give this advice because I am one of those people that works well it kind of in the dark. Like I can work well just with a, a book um, and kind of an empty machine, and that's what I like. That's kind of like where my head is. But you know, there's a plenty of people that would be so valuable to the world of software development if they get involved, um, who perhaps aren't that you know wired in that way. They do want more social experiences, or you know, they do want to you know go to like a coding school or even like an online type of school or something like that so i guess the only advice i would give is like don't take any one person's advice because 
I could very easily just say, go and grab a book and learn. And then you kind of do that and you're like, oh, I suck. I'm no good at coding. Like, I can't just follow this book and learn. Um, but then likewise, there are people that maybe are wired that way and they get told to go on a course and they can't deal with like the social aspects of it very well. And, uh, you know, it kind of just tires them out like perhaps it would for me. So I would just say, you know, you need to find your own way with this and just see what works for you. And it is, again, it goes back to that whole focusing on the results thing uh, that we were speaking before. Like, I would just say, work out what it is that is your goal. So is your goal to make, um, let's say, a iPhone game? Or is it to make an app for, I don't know, your church or your study group or something like that uh, to help manage some kind of element of that? Like, what is an actual concrete goal that you want to achieve? Uh, and then just kind of take baby steps to get to that in whatever way that it is you you wish to learn. And I'm hoping most people that would listen to this would know whether they're a social person or a book person or even a screencast person, because that's obviously another uh, new way to pick things up now. Uh, so, yeah, it's perhaps not the world's best answer, but it's just just keep an open mind and just bear in mind that there's a lot of mismatch between people's public kind of persona and what their actual real skill level is. So even if you think, oh, I really like suck at programming or whatever, there's someone out there who also sucks at programming, but he's just kind of put a braver face on it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good at this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then vice versa, there's people that, you know, are really good. And they're like, oh, I don't really know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. So you just need to be aware of that and not perhaps listen to your inner critic so much. And just get on, just produce something. And as long as you're seeing any kind of concrete goal, just work towards that. I really like that advice of don't listen to one person's advice because learning is such a personal thing and everybody learns differently. Some people are great with going to college and doing it the very academic way, but some people prefer to get their hands dirty and just start building stuff. And both of those are totally valid. And it's, I think it's very refreshing to hear when people talk about learning as something that is a personal experience and not something that can be universally the same for all people, because that that's kind of really how you get into being toxic about how people learn like, Oh, you know, JavaScript isn't real code or PHP isn't real code. And those are all totally valid. Yeah. It's like, actually, if anyone's familiar with a um, guy called Gary Vaynerchuk, who, you know, is quite well known in the sort of marketing and social media kind of sphere at the moment, he says, don't be romantic with how you make your money. Like, it's not about, oh, you know, I'm really good at Twitter, or I'm really good at Snapchat, or I'm really good at YouTube, or whatever. Like, you're only using those things to accomplish a certain end. Uh, and again, it's, it's the same with programming to a certain extent, in that, you know, don't be romantic about how you do your programming. Don't be romantic that, all right, well, I've learned JavaScript, so I'm going to use JavaScript forever for everything. You know, don't be romantic about the ways you want to learn. It's literally, you know, for me, and I think this is something that's just kind of come with age, because... When I was a lot younger, I would have perhaps been a bit more romantic about uh, and idealistic about the way I would want to do something. Whereas now it's more about the result. I've kind of, you know, now I've got like a family and kids and all this type of thing. I'm I, I'm trying to optimize my time all the time. So I know there's certain things I want to achieve and I've got a limited amount of time to do it. So now I'm like not romantic about the approach. I'm just kind of more romantic about the outcome and then we'll do whatever it is so you know whether i need to use a certain language or a certain approach or do a certain thing i don't really care at this point so peter you were talking a bit about how people are all on all these different types of social media facebook twitter snapchat you're a big big fan of i know 
Um, one thing that you work with in particular that I find very interesting is the, the stuff you do with conferences. Uh, we actually met at Fluent a few months ago. And I think that that's, that's very interesting because you are actually involved in sort of an organizer role. Can you tell me a bit about how that became a thing that you were interested in? A lot of these things just seem to come along by accident. At least they do for me. So I'm one of these people that when there's like a new platform or there's a new thing out there, I just naturally gravitate towards it. I'm a bit of a, you know, all shiny, like I'm kind of a magpie um, in so many ways. Uh, and often this is considered to be a negative trait. But when you're doing the work that I do now, and this is the whole reason I do media rather than full time programming uh, is because I decided at a point in my life that I'm just going to lean into my weaknesses. And one of my weaknesses is, oh, shiny, shiny. So, for example, you know, I was blogging from late 90s, 99, I think I was working on my first thing that you would call a blog. They weren't called blogs back then. The term hadn't been invented, um, but kind of like an online journal, you know, and eventually I was approached just from like, because I was writing about Ruby and stuff like that. I was approached by a publisher and they're like, oh, you know, do you want to write a book about Ruby? Like, you're one person we've seen online writing tons of stuff about it. So why not? Like, this is how they discover their next big author just by Googling around the stuff. Um, and so it went from there. And, you know, blogging led into a book, a book led into even more blogging. And then various other things just all came together so that someone at uh, O'Reilly Media, the company that makes those uh, programming books that have the lovely woodcut animals on the front, uh, kind of vouched for me, even though I didn't know who they were. Well, I mean, I knew their name, but we'd never spoken. Uh, vouched for me to be a co-chair of a new event that they were putting together, which was a JavaScript conference initially. It didn't end up being one. It kind of ended up being a front-end slash JavaScript conference. But uh, it was called Fluent, and O'Reilly reached out to me, like, you know, are you interested in, like, chairing a conference? And I had no knowledge of events. You know, I'd attended a handful. Not, I'm not a big event person for attending. I'm not big at a lot of things, but I'm better at organizing than I am at actually being an attendee. So I was like, well, I'll give it a go. You know, it's I've done blogging, I've done tweets, you know, Twitter, and I've done some podcasting, stuff like that. Let's give it a go. Like, what's the worst that can happen? So we kind of agreed on it. We started working on our first event. It was a ton of work. I learned so much about you know, how to get people to submit proposals, all that type of thing. And I'm sure there's plenty of people that will be listening that have been involved with meetups and events and so on. And they, they know it's a really like a ton of work. But the good thing is when you work with someone like O'Reilly, it's almost like if you're writing a book for someone like O'Reilly versus self-publishing in that they have lots of people that carry the, you know, the hidden weight, like the logistics and sorting out the, you know, the venue and obviously paying for the venue and all that type of thing. So I almost got to do the same thing that I was doing with my newsletters in that I was just kind of curating the conference, essentially, from the proposals that were coming in. You know, a schedule for a conference in so many ways can look like what a newsletter looks like. It's just, you know, right, this talk goes here, this talk goes here, this is the story we're trying to tell with this kind of arc of talks. And that's really all it was. You know, we, we've done it for um, five, six years. It's kind of on hiatus at the moment, pending... This isn't like super public, but it's been revealed on Twitter. But yeah, it's kind of on hiatus at the moment, uh, just you know, seeing what's going on in the industry and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's been a very interesting experience. So I also got to do OSCON Europe, which relaunched last year. Um, and again, a great experience working with you know different people within O'Reilly and so on. I'm kind of now taking what I've learned from running uh, six different events with O'Reilly, and we're looking at actually doing it ourselves. So Cooper Press, you know, we do the newsletters, but... We've got such a large audience. Why not do events as well? 
So we're actually doing our first one uh, next month, so at the end of May. And we're keeping it really small, sort of 40, 50 people at most, just doing it in an evening. And then we're going to work our way up. So we're going to go from 40 people to, you know, like perhaps 50, 60 people to 100, 200 to whatever it is that we feel works. And it's exactly the same process with the newsletters and everything else that I've discussed so far. Just learn as I go uh, and see what I'm interested in. So I never planned to do events. I was never interested in events. Got asked to do it. And I just kind of usually say yes to everything. So, yeah. So if anyone else is a podcaster or anything like that, just invite me on because I'll just go, yeah, great. Let's go for it. So um, I guess that's one of the things I've learned. Like there's so many people out there, actually. I'm kind of going on a tangent, but there's a lot of people out there like uh, Jason Freed and, you know, DHH and some of your more programmer businessy people, I would say. And they kind of say like, oh, you've got to say no to everything. And you've, uh, you know, you've got to try and keep scope small and, you know, make sure you get things precise and correct and, uh, you know, go from there. And I'm kind of like, I take the very salesman-y approach, I guess, the more businessy, entrepreneurial kind of you know, approach of just just say yes to everything and then kind of figure out how to solve the problem later. Like, you know, if you want me to come on a podcast and talk about football, I'll just be like, yep, I'm your man. Um, <laughs> and then I will just cram down and I will learn something really cool and interesting about football and kind of sound good on the topic. Like, and there's a lot of people that just don't like that or wouldn't be happy with that or comfortable with that, but that's just kind of how I roll. Uh, you know, I didn't know about certain topics, like, you know, that we've got newsletters on, but I just kind of doubled down on them, got into them, learned what they're about, learned what make the people in those places tick. Uh, so, you know, the same's going to happen with events and online stuff that we do and, you know, podcasting, as I mentioned before, you know, just get on with it and do it. But uh, I do not, I definitely don't give this advice for everyone because if you, wouldn't be comfortable doing that like and you did say oh yeah i know how to do everything um you, you would get into a lot of mess like it's got to be something that's kind of almost in your dna to take that hackish approach it's not for everyone well first of all i'm perfectly okay with that entire tangent you went on uh, i'm just soaking everything up <laughs> that's a good tangent. but i think my favorite thing you said in that tangent was if you didn't know something about a space you learned what made the people tick so you went to who was already there and you learned about them and their culture and what makes them tick first before trying to do anything else. I think that is such a smart thing to do. It's just a great piece of advice. It's kind of crazy, though, in that so much of media nowadays isn't designed in a way that it actually exposes people who don't put that effort in. Like, it's actually so easy to blag your way through so many things nowadays. Um, it's kind of disturbing. Uh, so one example that I can recall was the BBC here in the UK um, accidentally mixed up their waiting room with uh, people that were waiting to apply for a cleaner position, like literally, you know, janitorial position. Um, and the guests that were meant to be going on air to um, a live news show. And they called this guy in called uh, he meant to be Guy Keeney, I think his name was. But unfortunately, a guy called Guy Gomer ended up on the show so one was a white irish guy and the guy who ended up on the stage was a guy from nigeria who did not he was, he was there just like for a cleaning job but he got brought onto the live show and actually asked questions uh, about apple and how itunes was going and stuff like that and he just like he gave it everything like he he thought it was part of the job interview that he's being asked these random news questions um but he just gave like the whole interview uh, really went for it and 
like the presenter didn't bat an eyelid at this whatsoever. It was absolutely hilarious. And you can even find this on YouTube and watch like what he said. Um, and he kind of almost became like a mini celebrity for a while. He didn't get the cleaner job, unfortunately. Um, I think he definitely should have. Uh, but <laughs> this is the thing. So much of media now just isn't set out to catch people who blag. So I think that's what I'm always trying to, I'm always aware of that. Like it's so easy to pretend you know stuff about stuff just by yakking and yakking like well, I'm doing now, I guess. But it's a lot harder to actually show any insights to people that are experienced in the space. So that's something I really have to be so careful with when I'm doing a Go newsletter, when I'm doing, I mean, JavaScript and Ruby are areas I do know about. But when it's like, let's say Go, for example, or I don't know, some of the topics that, you know, perhaps aren't my strong points. Mobile, we've got like a mobile web weekly as well. I just have to be really careful that I am listening more to that group of people than perhaps I'm saying, uh, because otherwise you're going to fall into that trap. And, you know, anyone who's in the know is going to be like, yeah, you're an idiot. No, I don't want people to think that. I think this kind of actually comes back to something that we've talked about on the show before that we've called on-demand learning. Like, you don't need to know everything about all of programming because that is humanly impossible. Mm. But knowing how to learn things and how to scale up quickly in an area is one of the most valuable skills, learning how to learn. Yeah, I like I like that term, on-demand learning. That's exactly what I have to do, like, every day for everything. You know, and I think everyone has to get more used to that occurring in the future because... I saw a tweet going around earlier today, and it was something like, when I took my database class, you know, NoSQL didn't exist. Uh, when I took my networking class, there was no such thing as Wi-Fi and, you know, DSL and stuff like that. And there's kind of this whole list of things, like when I took my such and such class, and then something that like is really popular today, uh, tacked onto the end. And it's basically saying, you know, <laughs> learning the essentials is still useful, but you need to be learning all the time because otherwise you wouldn't know what Wi-Fi was or what broadband was or just anything uh, that's kind of existed in the last several years or whatever. So on-demand learning is absolutely essential. Yes, totally agree. Yeah, I mean, when I first when I built my first website, nobody even really knew what CSS was at that point. I mean, this is 1999. And it's like you look at that over time and obviously that wouldn't scale. So you have to always be aware of what's out there, aware of what's coming next. But at the same time, balance that with not getting distracted by the new shiny too much. And I think that's mm -hmm. that's kind of a tough balance and something you seem to do very well, especially with media. Yeah. But I mean, I'll bear in mind, though, that I've only done that by doubling down on going into media. So obviously, there's a lot. You know, not everyone can do that. Like, I wouldn't say any every single developer who has a fascination with brand new things should say, oh, well, I'm going to go and become, you know, I'm just going to ditch programming and do more like media stuff. Because otherwise we'd kind of run out of good programmers. <laughs> like we, we don't. I don't want everyone like taking that approach. It just kind of worked for me because, you know, I, I founded my my school's newspaper and stuff like that. Like I was doing media stuff as a kid, so it just seemed like a natural thing for me. But I do. I am kind of aware of the fact that there are some people that have actually a bad reaction to the newsletters. Uh, so you'll sometimes see on Reddit there'll be discussions like, "Oh, how do you keep up with the latest stuff in like JavaScript?" and you know, obviously, I always go to those threads because I'm like, oh, let's see if JavaScript Weekly's there. Like, see if anything of mine's in there um, or maybe something else that I can learn from. But very often, the response is more like, you know, oh, you don't need to keep up, stay up to date all the time. Just like make sure you know the essentials and then you'll kind of just pick stuff up as you go along. And to a certain extent, that's actually really good advice because if you are a full-time developer, is it beneficial? And I guess this is the whole fatigue 
set of articles we've seen come out lately is jumping from you know backbone to knockout to ember to angular to react like it's just like a new shiny thing every five seconds is it useful to be doing that as a full-time developer i don't think it is it's useful to have the agility to be able to jump between those things but in terms of actually jumping between them saying all oh, right yeah now i'm a full-time angular developer oh now i'm a full-time react developer it's kind of unhealthy because you're not i don't even know why it's unhealthy but it just doesn't seem like a great thing to be doing but whereas for me, I kind of recognise that is actually what I like doing. So I've put myself into a, a job role where I have to do something that is grotesquely unhealthy. I guess it's kind of almost like becoming like a tester, a taste tester for soda or something like that's kind of what I've become. Like I'll just I'll take the mental hit of, of testing all this kind of you know fun stuff out and uh, letting you know what's going on. But uh, yeah, I would say everyone who's a reader should perhaps have a little bit more moderation um, you know, you can see from the work that I put out what is the new shiny, but don't necessarily think, well, just because it's gone in there, don't, you know, don't just like leap straight on it. Just know that it exists and put it in the back of your mind, but don't just leap straight on it. But uh, I guess I never communicated that very well. This is the first sort of time I'm actually thinking about some of these issues. So maybe I should put like warning signs in the, the newsletter, like, you know, like caution required or something like that, you know. Definitely. Probably an animated GIF, I would assume. Mm. So when you're talking about all these new technologies, I, I feel like there's kind of a similar, a, a parallel thing going on with media where you started venturing into email, you're using Snapchat a lot, you use all these different tools. How do you, is there a heuristic, is there a way for you to look at a new technology, whether that's a media technology or a programming technology and say, pretty quickly whether it's a distraction or whether it's something that's new that you should probably be learning if there is i haven't kind of discerned exactly what it is but i think the key thing is is just to kind of dip your toe into like everything a tiny amount and then as soon as it shows any sign of gaining traction to kind of double down on it which i've pretty much done with everything so far like i'll just you know i'll make sure that if a new social thing comes out and i've seen enough people talk about it i'll make sure i go and get an account i'll put like an initial post on it i may you know so like anchor is an is, is a good example of this recently um it's a ios app uh that basically lets you record audio it's almost like a, an audio snapchat like you can go on you can record up to two minutes of audio uh but then it's presented in like a very social kind of twittery kind of way um and then other people can respond with their own audio so the aesthetic almost becomes like a CB radio because you can just go on and just say, oh, you know, I'm doing such and such today or I've got this question I want everyone to answer. And then people will just immediately come back and be like, you know, give their answers or give their own kind of impressions of what, you know, you're talking about. Uh, and that, I, you know, I, I played with that for a week, um, built like a very tiny following up on there, just, you know, added all the people from my other social networks to it. But then I haven't touched it for the last few weeks and I'm just kind of waiting to see what happens. It doesn't seem to be like huge growth. Um, especially with the programmer space, unfortunately, which is obviously where I'm focusing. But in terms of there being a heuristic, I don't really think there is. It's just a case of do I see people mentioning it a lot? Um, so one, actually, one social network that I totally skipped because it just didn't feel right to me whatsoever was app.net. And that was an interesting one because it actually skewed quite heavily towards technical people. So I really should have been on top of it. But there was just something about it that it didn't feel like they were solving a problem. It just felt like they were 
annoyed with a few things about Twitter and kind of created this alternative, but that didn't really offer anything beyond what Twitter already had. So I just didn't jump on it. The only people I saw going for it were people that were pissed off with Twitter, basically, um, but from almost from like a political point of view. And I never really used that. I guess that's an anti-heuristic almost in that I think if people are going for something out of kind of political reasons, I will tend to avoid it because those things just don't seem to work out. Like every, every, every network or every tool like a Facebook or a Snapchat or a Twitter or even blogging, they've all grown very, very slowly. And I know you may laugh and you may think, well, Facebook didn't grow slowly. Like it was all over the world within like three or four years. Well, Three or four years is, you know, quite a long period of time. And the way that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg grew it was just getting it big in like one place like Harvard before he even unleashed it on somewhere else. Now, that is a really great sign. If you can make something really popular within like a tiny niche and then grow it out from there, that's great. And that is kind of what I would consider to be slow growth nowadays. But when a network comes out and it's trying to be all things to all people and it's trying to just blow out the door and be absolutely super massive and amazing from day one and it gets all the press, it's on TechCrunch, it's on Product Hunt, it's here, it's there. They seem to fail. That, those seem to be the things that don't seem to work. Everything is a slow burn that seems to work. Facebook was a slow burn from my point of view. Twitter was a very slow burn. Um, <clears throat> Pinterest was ridiculously slow burn. Um, in fact, they even had to relaunch the whole thing. So, and Snapchat, again, you know, you're seeing a lot of stuff about Snapchat at the moment, but you know, at least I've been on there. I don't know how long. It's been years, though. Like, it's been at least a few years. I, I kind of didn't use it for a few years, but the fact is it, it has been growing very slowly and it's proven itself. So if we're going to have any heuristic, it's that anything that just blasts out of the gate and it's like, oh, wow, everyone's using this. This is super duper amazing. Like Peach, for example, is a recent example of this. Everyone's yelling about it straight away. App.net, Peach. Um, there was a search engine called Cool, which everyone suddenly got onto about three years ago, which totally bombed. All these big blasts out of the gate, they all seem to fail. I can't think. I mean, maybe I'm going to get like, perhaps we'll get tons of mail now. Like, you know, oh, well, this was this was big out the gate. This was big out the gate. But I can't think of anything that I use now that was absolutely huge instantly. Like Skype took forever. Facebook took forever. Gmail took years for, you know, the average person who's using it. Google did. Like, Google took, you know, at least two or three years before it was a big deal. You know, lots of people still know Ask Jeeves, Alta Vista, all that type of thing. So, yeah, I've rambled enough now. But, uh, yeah, so there's my heuristic. It needs to grow slowly and steadily and see consistent usage. Um, so I will generally notice that. So if I'm seeing someone on Twitter saying, oh, yeah, I've done Snapchat again, I've done Snapchat again, I've done Snapchat again, and I'm seeing it, people mention it on YouTube, and I'm seeing it here, I'm seeing it there. After a few months, maybe I'm going to go actually to site in this. Let's give it a go. It sounds kind of like you actually have a heuristic in that you want other products to be built the same way that you build your own products. You want them to solve a very specific need that is very real and not try to be all things to all people. You want them to have a problem that they're actively solving. If I, if I wasn't misunderstanding what you said there. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I don't mind if that problem changes. So... Snapchat is a perfect example of that in that it began life, uh, it kind of solved a few psychological problems with messaging, which, as I'm sure we all know, uh, one of the famous early uses of Snapchat was so that people could send very rude pictures to each other because of that whole, you know, it was there and it was gone, like once you'd viewed it, 
Um, I mean, they added replays to it, but the whole point, it, it was meant to be ephemeral and it lasted a very short period of time. But it was just for one-to-one messaging. Like, it re- that was really the perfect use. It was, you know, sending nude shots was a perfect use for it. It was a great use case. Um, the problem is, where can you grow from that? Like, it has this one use. So when they brought stories on, which... A lot of people were like, well, I don't see the point of this whatsoever. Uh, it was a really slow burn to get it going. And now, like, stories has become almost like the main thing that people use it for. But they changed it, like, so much. And I mean, recently, like, in the last couple of months, the main thing that we've seen Snapchat getting used for is doing face swapping. It's actually inspired a whole bunch of face swapping apps uh, in the different app stores that don't require Snapchat. So Snapchat's doubling down with making the, the face swapping better and it's 3D and it kind of, you know, you can get these effects and filters and stuff. But the fact is that is not where they began. Like, that's nothing to do with where they began. Um, so I don't mind if a, a network evolves and takes brand new directions. Like, blogging, like, the whole point was never to have, like, giant media conglomerates putting out blogs about elections. Like, that was never on the radar. So I don't mind platforms evolve, but yes, having like at any one moment some kind of idea of who your user base is and what the mission is uh, does seem to be very valuable. So I can't say that, you know, perhaps in another few years, maybe um, Cooper Press won't just be focused on developers. Maybe we will have different branches that are on, uh, you know, for gamers or whatever it happens to be, uh, or even, you know, politics, which wouldn't be my choice at all. But, uh, you know, never say never. But I hope whatever it is that we would have a specific focus of what we're doing. So, yeah, I guess you're kind of 90% right with how I feel about it. I guess I'm just kind of fleshing out. Like, I don't actually actively think about these things very often. So it's kind of cool to be uh, challenged on them. I think my favorite thing about Snapchat, you guys, honestly, is just being able to lay in my bed and look at Food Network stories. (laughs) That's a good one. It's funny, actually. Like, I guess if there's a final point to make here, and I'm sure you've both had experiences with this, in that... Different media have different expectations. Uh, This is something that people, perhaps who don't spend a lot of time thinking about media stuff, don't realise. So why have emails, you know, newsletters become really popular and blogs have kind of fallen down the scale? Uh, It's just because people's perceived value of email is higher. Um, This is the same reason that uh, video has become very big on Facebook. The perceived value of video is a lot higher than, you know, text or whatever. This is why there's companies that can charge $30 a month uh, to have you access screencasts of how to learn stuff rather than it be well-written tutorials. Like if a well-written tutorial now is generally either free or it's in an ebook. Well, why is it in an ebook? Why can't it just be on a website? Well, it's in an ebook because the perceived value is higher and they can make money on it. Um, and again, we've seen the same thing. This is why podcasts have had a resurgence because of the engagement, because they're perceived to be higher value, because the CPMs are higher for the advertising, and so on and so forth. And we see this with Twitter and Snapchat as well. Uh, So sometimes there's not just financial aspects to this, but kind of cultural values or political values to things. And one of the things that you would have seen is, for better or worse, I mean, there's a lot of right and wrong on both sides of these arguments. In fact, I say both sides, there's like so many sides to these arguments, but where Perhaps someone causes offence on Twitter and someone makes a reference to something um, that's perhaps politically incorrect. It's very easy nowadays on Twitter to you know, bring together a group of like-minded people to kind of perhaps publicly denounce something that has occurred. Um, and again, I'm not judging whether those things are right or wrong, but it's very easy to kind of 
put those kind of things together to kind of correct social wrongs and all that type of thing. On Snapchat, however, it's basically impossible to do that. So a lot of the content that I've seen on Snapchat tends to be a little bit more closer to the line. Like there's things on there that you wouldn't put onto Twitter. So like the whole, uh, when they did the filter with uh, Prince, um, there were, you know, a lot of people on Twitter were like, oh, you know, they've put a filter on that's allowing people to do like blackface on Snapchat. And it kind of was like there was, they had a really good point. But on Snapchat, it didn't really cause any drama at all because there's no real way of like, you can interact with people. It's only on a one by one. You can't bring together a band of people to complain about something. So people are more likely just to go, oh, lol, or oh, that's funny or whatever, like whether or not they agree with it or not. Whereas on Twitter, you can bring together those bands of people. And I think that's why a certain type of humor and output perhaps is moving to Snapchat and other like social mediums where you don't... I'm trying to like straddle the line here. I always like to sit on the fence with things like this because I can totally see every side of these arguments. But where perhaps people want to be a little bit more risque in their comedy or perhaps a little bit more offensive or whatever, I'm seeing a lot of those people actually moving to Snapchat and kind of linking to it from Twitter because they know that they're not going to get a ton of right or wrong kind of hatred on there because it's just totally impossible on that platform. So I guess, you know, I'm just saying all of this just so that people are aware that the same content in different media doesn't have the same value or the same impact. And so if you do have a message to share, think about where you're going to put it and where it would work best. Because even if you want to discount the fact that, oh, I hate video, like I always prefer doing written tutorials. Well, if you want to make money out of it, there may be a good reason to do video as well. So keep all of that in mind. And with that ramble, I shall now hand it back over to you because I'm going to go off on one. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for stopping by the show. We really appreciate it. Uh, are there any links or whatever that we should get in show notes for people? Anything you want people to know about? Well, I guess one of the things I would want people to know about is you can always follow me on Twitter at uh, Peter C. So just P-E-T-E-R-C. I'm always happy to respond to people. And if you've got anything that wants to go into uh, one of our newsletters, so you've you know released a new library or anything like that, or a new tool or a tutorial or whatever, like just hit me up. Just you know, send me the link. Uh, good to go. Um, other than that, you can also visit cooperpress.com and see not actually all of our newsletters because this is one area where I've just cheaped out and not actually, we've not actually spent the time building the site properly. Uh, but you can find links to most of the newsletters there. So if you're not familiar with me, that's a good place to start and find where to sign up to. Beautiful. Alrighty. I think that's a wrap. Woohoo. <laughs> Thanks, gents. Thanks a lot to Peter Cooper for coming on the show. Sean and I had a great time chatting with him. We also want to say thanks again to Linode for sponsoring Does Not Compute. Linode makes it really fast and easy to spin up virtual machines for pretty much anything you need. Their servers start at as little as $10 per month, and they're all SSD-backed with Intel Xeon E5 processors running on a 40-gigabit network. Check out linode.com slash doesnotcompute to learn more. While you're there, sign up with the offer code doesnotcompute20, and you'll get $20 in free Linode credit. If you enjoy Does Not Compute, remember to rate and review us in iTunes. We'd also love to catch up on Twitter, at DNCCast.
Sean, today is a very special episode of Does Not Compute. <laughs> just like that, huh? Just like that? Just like that. Yeah, we're just going to jump in. That might have been the smoothest opening for any episode we've ever had until I screwed it up. <laughs> 